We'll be looking at <clears throat> 2 Timothy today, chapter 2, and today verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> Paul had given three analogies for Timothy in the first part of chapter 2, that the Christian is like a soldier, he's like an athlete, and that he's also like a hardworking farmer. And now in verse 8, uh, he says to Timothy, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And may he uh, write it on our hearts today by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God that is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is more like a surgeon's scalpel. It penetrates into the depths of our heart hearts and our consciences. Lord, would you speak to us today, enable us to listen, to understand, and to bow the knee to what you say in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, Paul had said to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Over and over in this epistle, uh, Paul emphasizes the necessity of the believer, of Timothy and all believers, to uh, endure suffering for Christ. And, you know, this may not be a very good tactic to recruit people for the Christian faith. Become a Christian so you can have a miserable life and suffer. It's not a good tactic for recruiting uh, more people necessarily, but you know what? Jesus does not want followers who haven't counted the cost. Jesus dispersed the crowds until there was almost none left uh, who would follow him because he wanted people to follow him for the right reasons, not for what they were going to get out of it, but because it's what they ought to do. It's what we should do as Christians. Follow him no matter what, no matter what the suffering. So if you're a Christian, you shouldn't expect to live a life of ease. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophets warned the people of God, you know, woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Christian life is not a life of ease. Rather, expect hardship. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. If you follow Jesus, if you follow in his steps, you're going to follow in his sufferings. So uh, how then, the question for us is not how to avoid suffering, but how to endure it. How to endure hardship. And so we don't want to be like some who have uh, started out well in the Christian life. We've known these people. We've seen them and we've scratched our heads. They started out well, but they ended up falling out of the race or giving up the fight. We want to do, as the book of Hebrews tells us, to run the race with endurance that is set before us. 
And so what then is it that's going to keep us motivated and focused and energized to endure the hardship that comes with the living the Christian life? Well, Paul gives us three ways, and you can see in your bulletin, I've actually included an outline for you today. Uh, three ways. The first way that we will be enabled to endure is if we remember Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. Where do we find the strength to run the Christian race? Hebrews says by looking to Jesus. We find strength to endure the same place we found salvation. The very beginning of the Christian life. And that is to when we looked to the crucified, risen Savior. When we look to Christ, we were saved. When we look to Christ, we will be strengthened to endure. And Paul here lays stress on the resurrected Christ. The word order in the New King James, which I was reading out of today, which I always read out of, but uh, does not actually follow the Greek word order. Uh, it, the New King James mentions seed uh, that Jesus Christ is the seed of David, and then it mentions the resurrection. And that is the logical or maybe chronological order. But the original order in the Greek, which is the language it was written in, is first the resurrection and then the mention of the seed of David. And so a more literal reading, and probably some translations have it this way, is to say, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the seed of David. Well, why is the word order important here? Because Paul wants Timothy to remember Jesus, to think of him as he is now, risen and ascended as Lord. Jesus came into the world as a conqueror. He, yes, he did so through his suffering, but he conquered the powers of darkness. He vanquished evil. And so this risen, conquering king uh, is to be the source of Timothy's strength. It, it is the source of your strength as we look to the one who reigns on high. Uh, the resurrection of Christ of course, uh, confirms all that Jesus did to save us. You know, we talk about that Jesus died for our sins. He died in our place. He purchased our, our salvation. If he hadn't been raised, then that would all be uh, non-existent. It wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. But the resurrection guarantees these things, confirms them. So we know that Jesus' death was truly a sacrifice for our sins that God accepted because he was raised from the dead and he ascended. And we also know that because Jesus was raised, that we too will be raised. There'll be a resurrection of the body for us one day. And even if we have to suffer to the point of death, we have the hope of resurrection glory. So keeping our mind fixed on the risen Christ will motivate us, will enable us to endure, to keep going when things are tough. Are things tough for you right now? They probably are in some area of your life. Well, things were tough for Paul. You think you had it tough. Uh, Paul, as he was writing this letter, uh, wrote from prison. And like I've probably mentioned before, the first imprisonment that Paul had, he was kind of, uh, had a lot more freedom. It wasn't so bad. 
But this second imprisonment where he's at now was in the Mamertine prison in Rome. It was a dungeon. It was built right over the sewer of the city, the sewer system. And the Mamertine prison has been called the House of Darkness. It was not a pleasant place. According to one ancient historian, it was 12 feet underground. And it was disgusting and vile by reason of the filth, the darkness, and the stench. And so the only way to get down into this dungeon was to be let down uh, into a hole, through a hole, by a rope. And some were simply put down in there and just allowed to starve to death, uh, awaiting their trial. But, you know, you can visit this prison today. And, and uh, I was reading an account of a woman who went there to visit and describe what she saw. And she said when she went down there, she felt claustrophobic, as the prisoners likely did. She said you, you can almost feel the suffering of those who spent time there. Well, Paul was being held there. He was going to be executed and Timothy understood that his own plight might end up like Paul's one day. Many believers around the world today are facing similar conditions. Uh, the Chinese Christians, pastors, are routinely imprisoned just because of their faith. Some are beaten, some are tortured. Almost daily, we I read reports of Christians in Africa being slaughtered by Muslims for no other reason than their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the pressure against Christians and our faith in, in this country is building. And we don't know the future. But I would say get ready, get prepared to suffer. And part of our preparation is going to be to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And when you remember that Jesus conquered Death and hell, and that he conquered sin and Satan, then you don't need to fear these things. Um, and when you remember that people like Paul and Timothy and many today have gone through the trials, the hardships that they went through for Christ, and they stood firm, then you'll be encouraged to stand firm as well. When we think about Jesus as risen, first of all, you know, we're going to see, uh, well, if you read the book of Colossians in chapter 3, it, it says that we need to set our mind on things above. I think Doug alluded to that in his prayer. And when we set our mind on things above the risen Christ, we, we first of all, it takes our mind off of ourselves and our, our problems, our trials, which is a good thing to do. Uh, and, and it also... Um, it, it gives us a picture of the victory of Jesus Christ. We see that he's won and that he's the conqueror and that he rules the world from God's right hand. And we need, to, we need to see that. That needs to be the picture we have in our mind. So the interesting thing is that Paul goes on to mention after the resurrection, he mentions Christ as the seed of David. What was the point there? I think he does so for a couple of reasons. And <clears throat> first, I think he does so to remind us of the human nature of Jesus Christ. Christ was and is both God and man 
one person with two natures, one divine and one human. So, if we deny or diminish the human nature or the divine nature of Christ, then we have gone astray. We've gone away. We're going away from the Christian faith. We're in danger of heresy. For for example, there was a teacher in the early church that arose named Marcion. You know, and false teachers are often very smart, uh, and uh, and they are very convincing. You have to be careful. But Marcion had Gnostic leanings. That means he saw anything and everything that was material, physical, as being evil. Uh, the Gnostics, uh, they, they thought that material things were evil. So when it came to his view of Jesus, you see, he denied the incarnation. Because how can the Son of God <clears throat> take on flesh if flesh is evil? Uh, and so he just said it couldn't be. And so what did what did he say about Jesus, who seemed to be a man <laughs> by all appearances? Well, that's what he said. He said it was just an appearance. It wasn't real. Uh, it was just a figment, you know, a pretense of some sort. Uh, but in contrast to that, the Church of Jesus Christ is always affirmed, and it did affirm against Marcion and other heretics. It affirms both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. We believe as we confess in the ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus was literally, actually born of the Virgin Mary. <clears throat> he is the seed of David. Uh, he, he literally descended from David. He's a physical descendant of him, biological descendant. And why did he become man? Well, he became man to take on our sins, to, take, uh, to represent us. Uh, he became man that he might become sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. But secondly, that phrase, the seed of David, it, it validates Jesus historically as the true Messiah who would rule on David's throne. So even now, Jesus in his human nature is sitting at God's right hand, enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, the Apostle Peter, uh, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, he said this of King David. He said you know, that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So the point for Timothy was that when he faced hardship, and he would, he was to remember that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is on the throne. And, of course, we look around at the mounting antagonism uh, uh, to the Christian faith, the ungodliness that rages against righteousness and truth, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is risen, the seed of David, and that he holds the reins of the universe. Ephesians 1.22 says, God the Father put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. So don't lose hope, don't lose courage. Look up. And see Jesus risen and reigning over all things. Know that he makes all things work together for good. Because he has all power and all authority to, to make that happen. Remember these things and you'll endure. Secondly, from our passage, if we're going to endure, especially in this wicked age, 
we must recognize, recognize the unstoppable power of the Word of God. At the end of verse 8, Paul mentions that Christ's resurrection and royal lineage were according to my gospel. Uh, and Paul said it refers to this as my gospel, not because he invented it, but because it was revealed to him. He said, this is my gospel. This is what I preach. It is the gospel. It's, it's what Christ gave all his apostles to preach and teach. It's the only gospel. And he knew it to be true because God had revealed it to him. And, and if it wasn't true, he wouldn't have suffered for it. Think about that. I mean, you only suffer for and endure this, those things that you believe in. And Paul knew his gospel was truth. And so we need to get a firm handle on the gospel. But he said that he was suffering as an evildoer and as a criminal. Because of this, many turned their backs on him. Uh, no one likes to support a criminal, right? Because if you support the criminal, then you're uh, aligned with him and you are guilty by association. And uh, so his imprisonment was a stumbling block to other Christians. And they abandoned him. They, they didn't want to go to prison. They didn't want to suffer. So they distanced themselves from Paul. John Calvin notes in his commentary, he said, Paul's imprisonment lessened the credibility of his gospel in the eyes of of ignorant people. So he puts the blame not on Paul's situation, but on the people and the way they viewed it. Uh, it was His imprisonment was a hindrance in their eyes, but even if, even if that was so, Paul wants Timothy to know, yes, I'm in chains, but you know what? The, the gospel, the word of God, cannot be chained. Paul was in prison. He was on death row. He had no hope. Of being set free, but that didn't trouble him. He knew the gospel uh, didn't wasn't going to end. The word of God wasn't going to disappear when he died. He knew the word of God was unstoppable. In what sense did he mean the word is not unchained? Well, I think there's several ways we can look at that. Paul, first of all, knew that others like Timothy were going to carry on after him. They were going to carry the torch. And continue to preach the good news. And Paul had said to Timothy in in the beginning of chapter 2. That you need to pass on the truth to faithful men. Who will be able to pass it on to others. And so that process had already been set in motion. And Paul of course had written. Not only this epistle. But but many more epistles. Letters to the various churches. They were the written word of God, and those epistles have been copied many times over and spread around uh, in, in the known world. And so, even while he's in prison, even if he dies, the word goes forth. We still have it. It's still going forth. And then also, we know that even when he was there, he witnessed to his guards, and many of them were converted to Christ, spreading the gospel in the household of Caesar in Rome. And Paul said in Philippians 1:14, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's suffering actually, at least for some, served to embolden them. And when we see those who suffer and stand firm, it does that for us. And uh, we can think of many others besides Paul in church history that we can look to. But persecution is often a means 
of the greater spread of the gospel because Christians take courage from it. Uh, And when God opens a door for the word, for his word, no one can shut that door. John Gill, 18th century Baptist pastor and theologian in, in London, he said, when God gives the word a commission, there's no stopping it. When it comes in power, it brings down all before it. It cannot be fettered and bound by men, though men may be fettered and bound for the sake of it. And those who are um, will be richly rewarded in the end. Well, God's work can't be stopped. One final reason here is because it is accompanied by supernatural power. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So no mere human force can stop the power of God and its effect on the human heart. And these thoughts would encourage Timothy when he was suffering for the testimony of Jesus and for his word. So wicked men have evil intentions. They've tried... Many have tried to stamp out the Bible, to burn all the Bibles. Uh, That's impossible, of course, today. Uh, And it was always impossible, but people tried. And um, it's impossible because God's purpose is not only that he inspired his word, but that he has preserved it. And we have our Bibles today. We can be very, very thankful for that. And for those who suffered along the way. Uh, in order to preserve it. Uh, So it's an impossibility for the word to be chained because God has a purpose for it to continue to be preached until the end. And nothing can thwart the purpose of God. As Luther sang, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So recognize the unstoppable power of the word of God be confident in his purpose and in his plan to usher in his kingdom by that powerful word and that leads to the final point today from verse 10 that in order to endure we need to rely on God's sovereign plan to save his elect Hendrickson in his commentary said God's word will triumph it will perform its preordained mission on earth But what is that preordained mission? It's the salvation of all God's chosen people. In verse 10, Paul said, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul endured beatings, stoning, imprisonment, slander, all kinds of things for the sake of, of the elect. Uh, and what he is saying here is that as he persevered, as he pressed on in preaching the gospel, that unstoppable word went forth and he did he preached that gospel in order that God's elect would hear it, believe and be saved. So much for the baseless claim of those who say if you believe in the doctrine of predestination or election, then that's going to take away all the motive for preaching the gospel and doing evangelism. People say, if we believe God is predestined and chosen, who's going to be saved? Then why bother to evangelize? Uh, 
They're going to, the elect will be saved anyway. There's no need to, to spread the gospel. But look at Paul. Do you think that holding to the doctrine of election dampened his enthusiasm in any way to preach the gospel? No, not at all. In fact, he says that the salvation of the elect was one of the motivating reasons why he was willing to endure all things and to keep preaching in spite of the suffering it was going to bring on himself. Did Paul reason that since God had chosen who's going to be saved that he didn't need to bother preaching the gospel? No, no, a thousand times no. In fact, knowing that God had chosen a people for himself to be saved gave him the motivation to go out and preach the gospel, knowing God is going to save those whom he has chosen and would call. Now, you and I do not know, of course, Paul didn't know, who the elect were. Um, not at least before he preached and, and saw the results of his preaching. That's part of the secret plan of God. But we do know that God has elect people in every nation. There's, we know that in heaven there's going to be some from every tribe, and tongue and nation. And these are God's chosen. Uh, and knowing that, uh, we preach the gospel. And those who come, those who are called, those who persevere to the end and are saved, those are the elect. So God ordains not only who is going to be saved, chooses them, but he also chooses the means and the method of reaching those people so that they come to know Jesus Christ. You see, the eternal purpose of God includes the people who are going to be saved and the people who are going to preach to those people who are going to be saved. And election is one part of salvation. You know, it happens in eternity. It's before anything, before the world was created. God had an elect people. And so that's the first step in the golden chain of salvation. Read the end of Romans chapter 8 and you'll find it there. Uh, so election, it's God's eternal choice to save certain people. Uh, the elect are born into this world as sinners, though. So we have a problem, don't we? Uh, the, the elect are sinners and deserve God's wrath just as much as anybody else does. Well, uh, they're lost until they hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. Well, God sent his son to die for them. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, and so Paul preached. He said, I preached so that the elect might be saved. He knew that they needed to hear the gospel in order to believe and be saved. The elect are not saved just because of election. They're, they're saved because of that, yes, and all the rest that God uh, has done and, do, and does to save us. Paul didn't reason, well, God's going to save the elect. I guess I don't really need to really preach that much, and I certainly don't need to suffer. Using that reasoning, Jesus himself could have said, well, God has, my Father has an elect. I don't really need to go to the cross if they're elect to save them, do I? Yes, yes, of course. It doesn't make any sense to, to uh, think that way. Uh, Jesus came to save the angel said, Jesus will call him, you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people, his chosen ones, from their sins. Uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, notice he didn't say all 
there. Uh, a lot, yes, many, but not all. He knew also that the Father would draw those people that he died for and bring them to faith in himself. Otherwise, his death would have been in vain. Uh, and so here, Paul knows all this. God's revealed it to him. And, and Paul perseveres in the work of preaching and, and suffering for that. Uh, he knew that God would bring to salvation those that God had chosen. And uh, as you and I carry out the Great Commission in our own day, we, we need to think the same way that Paul did. That we do so for, for God's sake, first of all, his glory, he's commanded us to, but we do so for the sake and the salvation of the elect. Uh, Paul also understood that he himself was one of God's elect because the way he phrased it here, he said he endured for the sake of the elect that they also might obtain salvation. They also, in addition to um, he and Timothy and others who had already believed, uh, so he's thinking primarily of the elect who had not yet believed, but he also he certainly thought of himself as being chosen. And that brings up the question, how do you know if you have been chosen? Well, it's probably not the right question to ask, uh, but you can know that you have been chosen by God if you respond by his grace to the gospel and if you put your faith in Jesus, received him as Lord and Savior, and you've been born, uh, born from above, born again, uh, you can know that Christ has died for you. If you are saved by faith, in Christ, then you can reason that God must have chosen me from the beginning. And God called me to believe because I was going my own way. And we can reason that I am one of the elect. So we give him the glory for our salvation. Uh, so I would urge you today, if you wonder about these things, uh, to just realize that if you are unsure, you need to come to Jesus Christ, you need to put your faith in him, you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and trust your soul to him and to be saved. He will give you the gift of eternal life. If you have Christ, you have life. You have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, when did that start? It started in eternity past. It will continue into eternity future. It's because God ultimately has chosen you. But come to Christ and then you will be saved. And if you are saved, then you need to think, well, what about the others? What about other people? Paul was concerned, yes, about his own salvation, but very much about the salvation of others who had yet to believe. Paul lived for the sake of others whom he knew would be God's elect if they did believe, but he, for the sake of others who would believe. What are you living for? Just to um, advance your own career, your own life, your own pleasure, your own status in life. Well, there's no higher purpose than to live for Christ and the salvation of his elect. Matthew Henry said, next to the salvation of our own souls, we should be willing to do and suffer anything to promote the salvation of the souls of others. So first of all, are you saved? Do you need to be saved? Then... If not, then you need Christ. You need to call on him and say, Lord Jesus, save my soul. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. Take over my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. 
And next to that, then you should promote the salvation of the souls of others. If you are not, you're wasting the time that God has put you on earth for, left you on earth to do, to be part and parcel of this great commission. And notice the little phrase that Paul tacks on at the end. He says, with eternal glory. You know, Peter says we rejoice with joy inexpressible even now, even though we don't see him. But the fullness of salvation consists in our enjoyment of the eternal God and eternal glory. Earlier we read from Psalm 16, 11, which says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All the more reason to endure hardship and suffering in our lives. Well, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction. Yes, it acknowledges that we have affliction. There's no denying it. But our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So if you persevere in serving Christ, if you lay down your life for him, and if you have to suffer for him, if you go through hardship for him, then know that it's not in vain. Uh, you will share eternal glory with Christ, but with all those who perhaps you pointed to Christ and showed the way to Christ by your life and by your testimony. And what a blessed thing that is to re- be able to rejoice. People that you probably don't even know that you, t- you touched their life, but because you were following Jesus, it was obvious and it pointed others to Christ. And you think, oh, I said a little word for Christ one time, but it didn't do anything. Well, you don't know. It may have done great things in that person's life, and one day we'll find out. You and I, as it's been said, have only one life to live. And when it's over, only what's done for Christ will last. So eternal glory awaits those who follow Christ, who serve Christ, and who suffer for Christ. Don't give up the fight. Keep going in the race, and you'll find help by Paul's Three ways here, the three R's um, that we find in this passage. You'll find help to endure, to persevere. These are simply tools for us to, to remember the risen Christ and, and to rely on his sovereign work and to uh, recognize the power, the unstoppable power of the word of God. So that's how we endure. Amen. Let's pray.